sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Sally. Welcome to episode 82 of You Don't Have to Yell. Now, among the 300 most popular political podcasts in Sweden. I am not kidding. So, to those of you in Sweden listening, welcome and Björn Fiskin. That means the bear eats the fish in Swedish. Don't ask how I know that. Now, while there is no one factor that is 100% to blame for the hyper-polarized state of affairs in Congress... Gerrymandering is one that definitely comes pretty close, and we've covered redistricting a fair bit on this podcast, and we found out that when representatives inoculate themselves from popular opinion by carving safe districts and only have to worry about their own party, they tend not to make the best decisions. Go figure. Well, today's guest... Matthias Paulborn, professor of economics at Vanderbilt University, has studied the impact of gerrymandering on political polarization, and I invited him on the show to discuss how our system of redistricting contributes to the problem and an innovative method he came up with to counter it. And here's the teaser. Turn gerrymandering into a team sport. It'll make sense later on. I will be back at the end with final thoughts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to You Don't Have to Yell, the podcast and webcast focused on electoral reform. I'm your host, Dan Sally. With me today, I have Matthias Paulborn, Professor of Economics and Political Science at Vanderbilt University. Thank you for joining me today, Matthias. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, Thank and you. I was talking, I, we were, I was telling you before the... Uh, before we started recording, uh, that I used to do a lot of work with companies in Europe. And so a lot of times I had to, uh, a, a lot of, a lot of those companies were in Germany. So I did a lot of, a lot of business with, with folks over, over there. And my goal, every time I had a meeting with someone from Germany was to actually beat them on the zoom call, because I think it's cult- culturally, everyone there is like, 10 to 15 minutes early all the time, correct? Uh, very frequently, or at least uh, there's a really strong emphasis on being on time. Yes, on yes, late. yeah, absolutely. And so I so I actually logged onto this Zoom meeting about 15 minutes early just so I could say once that I beat somebody from Germany on the Zoom meeting. So thank you for giving <laughs> me that victory, even though I got you the show agenda about five days later that I said I would. So I feel it feel it balances it balances itself out thank you yeah and now to to bring the audience to into uh into matthias's specialty his his focus is on uh political polarization or one of your main interests is on political polarization in uh the the u.s and um and and obviously that's i think everyone would agree that's sort of reached a fever pitch uh with the the recent riot at the Capitol. So um, I'm interested in digging into that. But, uh, you know, I'm also really interested in digging into some of your work around districting and how things like gerrymandering affect it. So um, I think to start off, I'd I'd like to level set with the audience as far as 
you know, what good looks like for democracy. And, and Matthias, I'll ask for your confirmation here. But I think in, in my mind and, and in the mind of a lot of Americans, the way democracy should function is that uh, is that decisions are made from the, the ground up effectively. So, you know, you have your average citizen voter who elects someone to represent them in Congress, who represents their opinions, and then together they reach some sort of compromise that, uh, that effectively results in good government. So rather than this sort of top-down decision-making, really American democracy is designed to be from the bottom up. And, and, and ideally, a good system would be one that reflects that. Would you agree with that? Or is that kind of like a, a gross oversimplification? Yeah. So, I mean, in the political system, you have a problem that not everybody can be happy with all the decisions ever made. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and also sometimes it requires uh, a lot of specialization. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So the, the average voter is not well equipped to, basically have the fine intricacies of uh, regulating drug companies, for example, or financial services companies. Uh, And so there needs to be delegation. Mm -hmm. But the problem is you don't want to delegate to somebody who might be more competent, but is also very much different from you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's, that's, I think, the, the, the problem that we have uh, now is that there are lots of voters who are pretty much middle of the road mm-hmm. and they effectively have the choice between two parties that are becoming more and more extreme. Yeah. And so how polarized is America? And this seems like a dumb question now as I'm asking it, because I think people would answer very. But, you know, how polarized is the American political system at this point? So I think in a, on an absolute level, uh, it looks very polarized. Mm-hmm. Uh, the majority of the Republican House conference just last month voted in favor of overturning the election results. We had a, a storm on the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whatever your political policy preferences, going against the democratic system as an institution, that is pretty radical no? on, a, on an absolute level. Uh, and it really reminds us that democracy is actually a very fragile institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, it depends on political agents being willing to support the, the system, the legis- legitimacy of the system, even if currently their opponents are in charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, and this is why polarization is so dangerous for the, the stability of uh, democracy. If the policies that are implemented when the Democrats are in charge do not differ that much from those that are implemented when the Republicans are in charge, then there is essentially no reason to think that or the other party won the election, they are now uh, in control for one period. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the world. After this, we will not recognize our country anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Uh, and uh, so if, if you have little polarization, you may not like that you have to pay slightly more taxes or have fewer services uh, around when uh, the Democrat or when the Republicans are in charge, but it's not the end of the world. You're not going to start a civil war over this. 
Yeah. The yeah. And, for the next election. Yeah. And, and to your point, too, you know, when I think about political polarization, I almost think of it kind of like cholesterol, where a certain amount's good, a certain amount in your system is good, too much and, and nothing works. And uh, again, it's important that there are policy differences. It's important that voters are able to have a clear distinction between who they're voting for and choose a direction. And I, I guess another question as a follow up to that is, we're obviously very polarized now. How does that compare historically? Oh yes, so so there actually is uh, coming back to your to your statement uh, in 1950, the American Political Science Association actually issued a statement that there is too little polarization in the, <laughs> the yeah. parties are too similar. Yeah, and uh, today nobody would say that. No, so there's there's probably uh, very few people uh, who. Uh, who have the impression that uh, this should be really more lively politics, that <laughs> they should uh, fight more with each other. And uh, so we're we're today really very polarized in an absolute uh, sense. Yeah, you know, it's funny. So I, I read that report and I remember the, or a summary of the report, I should say. And I remember one of the quotes from it, and I'll paraphrase, was effectively that, their fear was that the political parties were so alike that voters might actually choose extremism as a way to find some difference, which I just found hysterical because, you know, obviously we've solved the problem of the parties being too much alike and people have seemed to have chosen extremism anyway. So um, I guess, I guess you can't win. Um, now, one of the things that I picked up in a lot of your work is you feel gerrymandering has a huge influence over this, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so um, basically, gerrymandering is uh, is is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in in the U.S., we have uh, every ten years we have a round of redistricting, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, this is going to start later this year mm-hmm. for. For the next election cycle and that is necessary to balance differential population growth in different areas of states or of, of the united states uh, but unfortunately it gives the parties the opportunity to select their voters and this mm-hmm. is effectively like the reverse of the democratic process as <laughs> it should be. you know you think of democracy as a system where voters select politicians and here we have it effect- effectively the other way around. So there are two big problems that are generated mm-hmm. by uh, successful gerrymandering. The first one is that if the party in control of redistricting is not particularly stupid, they can effectively insulate themselves against unfavorable election outcomes. Mm-hmm. So in 19... 19- 10, in, in, in 2010, uh, the Republicans controlled redistricting in a lot of states. They had a landslide election in, in 2010. And so they were basically in, uh, in, in control of very many states when it came to redistricting. And they were really successful in using this. And so in 
uh, in 2018, for example, there were a lot of elections that went very favorably for the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for example, in Pennsylvania, they won 55% of the popular vote versus 44% for Republican candidates. And still Republicans control 110 out of 203 seats in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. So it's basically doesn't doesn't matter. Even, even what is a landslide by American standards uh, doesn't result in Republicans losing the election. And, yeah. uh, and so they will, as a consequence, they will again be participating at least. I mean, now they don't have the governor. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but uh, they will at least have a very powerful position in determining what happens in the next 10 years. Yeah, that, that really blew my mind because, you know, one of the things I hammer a lot on this show is the disproportionality of the U.S. House of Representatives on a federal level. So, you know, if you go to any one state, um, some of them are egregious. So Ohio is one that comes to mind where I think it was in 2020, 40% of the population voted Democrat. Um, Democratic congressional delegation, I think, is 25% of their 16 representatives. So it's significant. It's a, effectively a two representative difference. Um, the lopsidedness in the state legislature blew my mind because I had never um, I, 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 I didn't I didn't know it was it was to such a great degree. Um, now, one question I had, too, as I was reading some of your work is, you know, gerrymandering has been around for as long as there have been congressional districts. Is there something about the way we gerrymander now that makes it different and makes it so much more or, or, or adds to the polarization so much? Or is there something else as well that's kind of assisting that? So the problem is we have become better, much better. Mm -hmm. So it's very instructive. If you look at maps of Texas, for example, before mm -hmm. 1960, they have very boring congressional districts. <laughs> They have all these square districts and uh, mm -hmm. square counties. Yeah. And they basically add these counties until they have a district. Mm -hmm. So they, they look uh, more or less convex, mm -hmm. well-shaped. Yeah? Uh, and uh, that was the, the, the standard in, uh, uh, at that time. Mm -hmm. And it has now just become much more evident which areas uh, are particularly democratic-leaning, Republican-leaning. Mm -hmm. so there's, there's information technology helps in, in drawing these districts in really weird shapes, uh, both in, in Texas and in the rest of the country. And uh, that is, uh, right now, I think they have gone to the to the block level no? so basically mm -hmm. uh, they are this side of the street is uh, is more republican leaning than this side and and so in principle they can cut uh, boundaries to take that into account and that generates these absurd looking districts like in Pennsylvania, there's a district, a federal district that is called uh, Goofy Kicking Donald Duck. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I know that one. It We've... really looks like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, we, we've talked about it. There's that. And I don't know if you've ever come across the snake, which I don't know if the snake still exists in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. It's the I-85 I corridor. Had, they had the court or the, the redistricting. So it may not be anymore. Yeah. There. Yeah. But there, yeah. Are, there are some really weird shapes. Yeah. Yeah. And that was something, too. I, uh, a few months back, I had Dan Vicuña, who's the... Uh, uh, the the legal uh, or the legislative director for uh, Common Cause, and the phrase he used is he said, "This isn't your father's gerrymander." And he talked about how they use things like newspaper subscriptions and mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, new you know a, a cable subscriptions and things like that to build this demographic profile of a person and and detect their partisan bent. So you know to your point, the level of data that people use now to determine someone's voting preference goes way beyond the voter rolls. And one of the things that I found interesting as well is that, again, kind of getting back to something I I said at the beginning of this episode, the the purpose of government is to really feed uh, decision-making from the, the, the bottom up. And, and as you said, you know, you, when you elect a representative, you want somebody like you, you want somebody who shares your opinion, who understands where you live. Um, you want somebody who reflects your, uh, your background. And it seems like through this system of gerrymandering, where we have safe districts and where people can, where, where a party can effectively run a hyper-partisan, uh, without fear of losing office, it seems to me like the party platform is almost being fed from the top down in a way. And it's really the national party dictating the dialogue rather than the voters dictating it um, again from the bottom up. Is that is that a fair observation, would you say? Yeah, to some extent. Okay. I actually uh, make the counterpoint that it's sometimes the local control of the party nomination system that is particularly troublesome. So it's it's a combination with parties are very strong once they are once the representatives are in Congress, so they can can basically uh, keep uh, their representatives much on the party line. In terms of nominations, the parties are not particularly strong. Uh, and that actually might make things even worse. Yeah? So if you, if you think about Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, she was well known before the election, she's now even better known, yeah? and uh, has positions that are probably not even uh, the ones of the median voter in whatever is her district. But she probably has the support of the median Republican in that. So if, uh, if uh, McCarthy or so selected people to run in particular district, this is mm-hmm. like a counterfactual uh, institution, then it's very unlikely that he would select somebody like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene mm-hmm. to run in that district, not because he fears that she could lose. She doesn't lose. Yeah. yeah? She's basically secure because of the way they have 
cut the district, there is no way that she loses there. But the, the problem that she creates is that she becomes the face of the Republican Party, and that cannot be helpful in suburban districts where people are maybe less uh, radical or uh, more good government types uh, that should be that, that the Republicans have to compete for. Mm-hmm. So you have these negative spillovers from from the districts. If you think QAnon is is a real thing and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is uh, finally somebody who shows everybody uh, what the truth is, then you have no incentive not to vote for her in in that district. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, a, a, a more centralized party control. Uh, would probably not nominate her or somebody like her, uh, even in districts where winning is not a problem. Yeah, and I think what I'm what I'm taking away from your your comment as well is that the the folks who get elected in these safe districts don't necessarily represent the median voter in so much as they represent the median partisan. Or that, or, or or the median majority power, effectively. Um, the second thing, and this gets into something you, you mentioned in in some of your work I've read as well, is that that process also when you nominate or and and elect a Marjorie Taylor Greene, now every Republican in a somewhat competitive election is you know is now effectively running with the ghost of Marjorie Taylor Greene right over their shoulder and so you know it's to the democratic candidate they just effectively say you're they just effectively say this person's in line with x you know or you could take on the right for example Nancy Pelosi um is kind of the favorite boogeyman for them and so it it seems like in a lot of ways candidates in more competitive races end up running against the or, or or running with the worst member of their party sort of dragging them down is that right that's absolutely right no uh, whether it's pelosi or aoc or so these are the the, the favorite uh, democrats that you see in republican spots they basically say look the 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 person that i'm running against that may not be that easy to demonize mm-hmm. uh, they may have a history with uh, the district the voters may have observed them but what they can say is that well if you vote for my opponent then it's going to be these people who are more powerful mm-hmm. uh, to be committee chairs mm-hmm. uh, or guy might or might not be so bad. Mm-hmm. But these guys from out of state, they are really what you don't want. And therefore, even if you don't agree with me, if you think that I'm I'm too extreme, you essentially have to vote for me. Yeah. 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 And uh, so making systems less competitive is never a good idea. That's That's basically the economist speaking in me. Yeah, well, it's it's something. Oh, go on. Sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, so so basically, we have we have Adam Smith, who said uh, to paraphrase, uh, basically, we don't expect uh, that the, the baker or the butcher is a is a nice guy in order to feed us. Mm-hmm. Yeah? All that's needed is that they are 
interested in making money. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so uh, the the great thing about capitalism and competition is that it works even if people are not intrinsically good. Mm -hmm. so they get incentives to behave well, but competition is necessary for that. Yeah, mm -hmm. if there's only one baker in town, you have a problem. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, basically, we have uh, managed to get into a political system where in many districts there's only one baker. We are going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment with Matthias Bolborn. I hope you're enjoying this episode and I wanted to take a short break to remind you why we're here and how you can help. Now, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know how strongly we need true multipartisan democracy in the United States to fight the us versus them narrative in politics and get back to effective government. And ranked choice voting is the easiest way to open up our two-party duopoly to real competition. And if you know this is important, which I know you do, and you want to take action, which I also know you do, go to rankthevote.us, an organization dedicated to building out the ranked choice voting movement in every state in the union. Now, sign up on the website and you'll receive updates about ways you can take part in your home state. And remember, as I always say, or as I always quote, there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to the one who is striking at the root and you don't get closer to the root of our problems in the ballot box. I hope you'll join me. And now, back to the episode. I, I'm a true believer that it's really the incentive structure that we set for politicians in our electoral system that creates a lot of this. And um, and there are some people who are intrinsically good who are forced to make some very bad decisions as a result of, again, the, the, the structure that's there. Um, I, I want to get into the this model of redistricting that that you laid out in your paper and we won't necessarily go in depth uh on on this recording but i'll include a link on the site in the show notes so folks can check it out and 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 get a deeper understanding but you know it's one of the more innovative redistricting proposals I've seen, um, because in a lot of cases, folks talk about bipartisan commissions or talk about uh, grouping together like communities. And in your proposal, and, and you can correct me if there's anything I say that's wrong, but effectively what you say is let's, let's allow parties to redistrict, but let's make it a, a, a group effort. Let's make it a, a two-party game as opposed to just uh, a system where one party draws the rules and the minor party has to deal with it. And, and effectively, and, and again, tell me if I'm, if there's anything I'm misstating here, but it seems like it's almost a draft system where uh, legislators are picking blocks of voters in turn with each other. Is that is, do, do I have a clear understanding of that? Yes. So that, okay. that's, that's a very good description. Uh, and if you, if you step back and uh, if you have children, and they need to share something. Mm -hmm. Let's say uh, share a cake. Yeah. 
then one possibility is that you you just describe rules of fair sharing yeah mm -hmm. and then you say well you cannot take this and then not just necessarily cakes no like anything that can be shared between siblings usually results in quarrels mm -hmm. uh, and a possible game theoretic solution to this problem is to say well uh, here, sibling one, you decide on, on two blocks, yeah, distribute mm -hmm. in two heaps, yeah, and then sibling two can check, can choose which of these uh, heaps they want to take. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so here, you also uh, resort to a system where you basically say, well, you cannot be the only one who decides who gets what. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the, the, the fear of competition or that the other party participates is actually enough to get to pretty good outcomes. Mm. Yeah, and, and to, to, to elaborate on this for the folks watching and, and the folks listening, you know, really the way it works is, let's say, again, where we have a situation like Pennsylvania, where you have a Republican dominated legislature. Well, in the redistricting scheme, the Republicans would pick one block of voters first. And so, again, using their data and whatever other methods they have to figure out where their voters are, they would pick a block that favors them. The Democrats, in turn, would be able to pick another block. And, and as you lay this out, the idea is that the strategies the teams would most likely use or the strategies the parties would most likely use would be number one, to ensure their advantage, but also in certain cases kind of neutralize the advantage of the other in a district by adding Democratic voters or, or Republican voters, if, if that's the case, uh, into a district dominated by the other party, correct? So that's, that's mostly correct. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not necessarily the case that you want to just pick your own supporters. Mm -hmm. You have to distribute everybody into the, into the different districts. Mm -hmm. And so you will uh, choose both Democrats and Republicans. I mean, eventually you'll, you'll have to uh, send everybody somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but the point is that you will not create systems that are uh, very uh, favorable for yourself because then you're just wasting voters. Mm -hmm. But you're also not going to create districts that are very favorable for your for your uh, opponent. Yeah, and and so basically. Both of these uh, parties contribute to distributing the the voters in a way that eventually keeps all of these districts competitive or close to competitive. Yeah, and and in your mind, then, with the redistricting process or with the process of mapping out those borders occur once that process is complete, or are they filling in pre-existing districts uh, in a way? No, so so basically, what we propose is that we are getting away necessarily from geographic notions. Yeah. Districts. So, if you if you think about today's system, in today's system, the only constraint that 
the evil gerrymanderers have. Mm -hmm. That they need to draw districts that are somehow connected with yeah. each other. Huh? And they do that sometimes over bodies of water or over, over interstates. Mm -hmm. they, they have become very creative, but it does provide some constraints for them that they need to have a district map where each district belongs, uh, well, is, is only one piece. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a good thing to have that under the present system. Mm -hmm. If you didn't have that, gerrymanderers would be able to do even worse stuff than they are able mm -hmm. to do right now. But our point is that it might actually be a better thing to repair uh, the system. Yeah, Pre repair the system in the sense of we're creating a system where it's not anymore that possible to cheat. Mm -hmm. uh, and that might make it necessary to have districts that are not geographically contiguous mm -hmm. necessarily. Yeah. And I mean, so, so historically, geographic contiguity, uh, that comes from the way in which most countries or, or uh, polities are organized. No, there, there are good reasons why you want to have your country connected. As if, if one part of the country is attacked, you can come there without going through your neighbor's backyard. Uh, none of this really is a problem uh, in, in case of legislative districts. What you might want to have is that you have people who live roughly in the same area so that they can see their representative occasionally. That definitely makes sense. But you don't necessarily have to go only through district territory if you want to do this. I mean, even today, you're not doing this. No, very often, you'll, you'll probably cross several district lines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Districts. Yeah, the, the example you cited in, in your paper was this one in Texas, which for those of you uh, who... Uh, you know, just to describe it and you can check it out on, on the website, but it's effectively maybe the, the, the distance, I, you know, I use the state of Massachusetts. So it, it's about the, it, it's length from top to bottom or from North to South is about equal as to the state of Massachusetts from East to West. And it just sort of snakes between like the Mexican border and then goes off to the side and then goes up in another direction. And to your point, if you're visiting your, your congressional representative, you're probably dry or a lot of those constituents are probably driving out of the district to get there. Um, so do you feel then like if, if these districts aren't geographically contiguous, you know, one of the things that I thought about as I read that was, could it create a problem now where you have these like sort of dispersed districts that are hyper-partisan. So, you know, all the ultra-liberal Democrats are in this district comprised of a few different geographic regions and all the Republicans likewise, or is there some method or some way that this would be countered in, in your, your system? See, I mean, so, so today we have the problem that a lot of Democrats are living where other Democrats are living and a lot of Republicans are living where a lot of Republicans are living. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so this system 
would actually force a mixing of these groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that it's not anymore uh, only the one type or only the other type. Mm -hmm. And uh, so would create in in some sense more ideologically diverse mm -hmm. districts. Got it. And where you you can't only play to one type in order to win. And so would there be some kind of rebalancing sort of where you have to include certain percentages of partisans in order for it to be official? Is that how it works or am I misunderstanding? No. So the beauty is that it's really easy to write the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. And the, the hope is that if the parties are keen on winning the election, then they will choose their districts in a way that makes them competitive. But we don't have to write rules. So we don't have to say, oh, this is not what you can do. You can only do this and, uh, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. Rather, it is basically just uh, a very simple set of rules that, that can be written uh, on a very short piece of paper or in a referendum for a uh, for for the population to pass, there are many states in which, uh, in principle, the the uh, voters can pass redistricting mm -hmm. referenda, and uh, and and then uh, those two parties still play with the same objectives that they have now in redistricting. But the point is that in today's system, they're basically unchecked. They can one of these parties is unchecked. They can do whatever they want. And the idea uh, in, in our proposal uh, is that it would be better to have them checked by the other party. And what comes out of that system is much better. Yeah. And, and one of the things, too, that you brought up that I had to ask as well is, you brought up the the German model of proportional representation, which is something I'm I'm a huge fan of. Like when I and I say this, I tell this story a lot on this show. But when I started this podcast, it was actually uh, part of a project I was doing on campaign finance reform. And uh, after doing my research, I realized that it campaign finance is is not the key problem here or at least it's not uh it's not as big a problem as the way we apportion out our congressional delegations and germany was this one that i honed in on that just seems to be the gold standard um is there a reason that the the model you propose is better than proportional representation or is there a reason maybe you didn't like look at a multi-member district system like they have in in germany for example so it is my feeling that in the US, people are uncomfortable uh, with proportional representation. I would be perfectly comfortable also with proportional representation. Although I have to say, so there are many things that are better with proportional representation. There are also some things that are uh, better with the plurality rules or the, the American system. Uh, so in in my view, uh, the the benefit of proportional representation is that um, there's going to be 
a lot of entry in terms of parties. So you do not just have to choose between two parties, but mm -hmm. there are actually a number of different uh, parties. And uh, so there, there definitely is going to be a party that represents most of us. Uh, that, uh, there's a party for everybody. Uh, and so that's, that's a good thing. And these parties are relatively civilized in their political discourse with because they know that it's very unlikely that uh, any one of them is going to get uh, an absolute majority in the legislature can form the government all by themselves. In about, what's that, uh, let's say 70 years of German democracy after World War Two there has been exactly one period in which one party had an absolute majority of the, of the seats in the legislature. So they are used to having to talk with some other parties. So that is uh, something that uh, clearly uh, polarization is much less likely to happen uh, the system. That occasionally can also be bad mm -hmm. in the sense of, well, if you are really uh, unhappy as a voter with how things go, uh, it is sometimes difficult to bring about uh, a big change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's it's a slower uh, system to to effect change. Yeah, I've always been, you know, and people who listen to this show are going to be surprised to hear me say this. The one thing I've always thought about the American system is that in a crisis, it's much more responsive. And I think about the response to uh, the 2008 financial crisis, where I think within a matter, I mean, there was some back and forth, but within the matter of, of a few weeks, Congress had authorized a plan. And what I saw in uh, multipartisan democracies in Europe is there was a lot more back and forth. Um, and that time cost those economies. So I, I'm with you. I, I, I don't, I, I think there's some advantage. Um, the second part of that, and to kind of bring the, the, the listeners and the, and the viewers in here too, is that uh, there's, in my mind, from a, uh, from a, a practical perspective, uh, m m uh, proportional representation has a number of hurdles uh, and, and many more hurdles than a proposed reform like yours, like just reforming the way we do uh, districts. And, you know, one of the big things that stand in the way is, uh, you know, we have the uh, we have a law uh, written in 1976 explicitly requiring single member districts, which automatically makes proportional representation very difficult to implement. Um, and, and I say that, too, as well to, to dovetail to my next question, which is, you know, that mandate for single member districts was done because multi-member districts were often used to dilute the minority vote. And so part of uh, civil rights legislation or part of uh, the legislation around civil rights we, we, we did in the 60s um, was geared towards ensuring that the rights of 
uh, minorities for were were preserved. And so, how does your system account for that? So, if you if you think about minority representation, then mm-hmm. in principle there are two different objectives that we can have. One is that we have minorities represented in the legislature. And the second one is that the political system eventually generates policies that are helpful for minorities. And I think in the U.S. we are relatively good, actually, at uh, ensuring descriptive representation. That you have uh, a number of districts that are majority-minority and that they vote for... uh, somebody who looks like them. At the same time, this is very costly. These are districts that often vote 80-90% for Democrats, and it basically ensures a structural disadvantage for Democrats uh, at the the level of uh, the whole legislature. So it depends on what you're actually aiming for. If your objective is that uh, to, to generate uh, a number of districts that, that will have black representatives, the current system is actually not bad in, in doing that. And uh, interestingly, a lot of the uh, early gerrymanders uh, were actually bipartisan exercises where Republicans and Black Democrats work together to generate uh, a number of of districts that are very favorable for Black Democrats. Democrats individually felt that that was in their personal interest. And the Republicans, of course, had this this notion of, well, we want to dump uh, certain Democratic voters into only a few districts, and what better way of doing that than uh, than than gerrymander them in in very uh, so in, in in very small uh, number of districts? Yeah, I think I think it was actually, and we were talking about North Carolina. I, I want to say it was actually the North Carolina Democratic or North Carolina Republican Party, excuse me, that went to court. Uh, over a particular district violating the Civil Rights Act because it wanted to cluster uh, more uh, Democratic uh, minority voters in one district. And, and so to your point, really, it sounds to me like, like in, in your mind, those minority districts are better served being 60% majority as opposed to 90% and letting the remaining 30% be distributed in some other way that can elect candidates more uh, in line with their point of view. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. So, so, I mean, what, what we're basically getting is uh, almost perfect on the question of representation in the legislature, but uh, in, in many states in the South, you have basically all Democrats are from minority districts. Mm-hmm. They're not getting anything of interest for minority people. Yeah minority voters passed. And so uh, that raises the question, what is actually more important? Yeah. And so to, to bring this back to the original subject then of polarization. So 
if such a system is implemented, how does that change the calculations candidates make when running for office? And, and how does that positively affect the situation? So what, what we're getting is uh, basically the result that in, in the equilibrium of our, uh, of our system, the 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 maps will be perfectly representative of the state mm-hmm. that whichever party wins a majority of the electoral of of the voters vote if you just count all the all the votes will have a majority in the legislature mm-hmm. and so so that representation problem in terms of political preferences will be solved yeah, and at the same time, all these districts are as competitive as is possible given the, the political leanings of a state mm. uh, in that uh, basically there are no secure districts or, or there are no districts where you don't have to worry about the, the general election. You always have to worry as a, as a politician uh, about the general election. And the hope is that that improves their behavior, both in terms of uh, choosing more moderate positions rather than extreme positions, and possibly in in context of corruption. uh, It may not be possible to do all the stuff that uh, you're usually able to do uh, under the current rules. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to get back to your Adam Smith reference, more bakeries. Yeah. So, to summarize, rather than having a situation where one party draws the districts and the other party just has to suffer through it, the parties take turns assigning voters to districts, irrespective of geography and potentially resulting in non-contiguous districts. I know that's a lot to digest, and it might sound weird to have a district spread across the state, But it doesn't seem any less democratic than having a party that receives 55% of the popular vote win 45% of the seats in a state legislature, and that's already happened. Now, on that note, one thing this conversation brought to light is how state-level gerrymandering is often overlooked, and possibly worse, given that that ultimately determines how federal congressional districts are drawn, and we dug into this topic back in July of 2020 with Helen Kiokas, and I may have to dig into this more in future episodes because I think it's really important. Stay tuned. As always, music courtesy of Quellertak from Norway, which is right near Sweden. YDHTY's editorial advisor is Adam Yaffe, yet to have a nickname that sticks. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, United States of America, by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.